Well, I love stories of people who have skills that I don't. Uh, I think the older I get, the more I realize how narrow my set of skills actually are. And, and there's this guy right here who just was an amazing, amazing artist. This guy's name is Sir Edwin Henry Landseer. You might say, I, I don't know who that is. Well, if you've ever been to London before, you've seen his work. He is the sculptor responsible for the lions at Trafalgar Square. He was an artist and a sculptor in the 19th century. And, and one time, as legend goes, Sir Edwin went on a trip. He left London and he traveled to Scotland. And he stayed in a pub as a place for, for lodging and for food. And so after getting in his room upstairs, he came down to the pub downstairs. And he's having a meal. And sitting next to him at the next table are a couple of, of Scottish fishermen. And, and one of them is very animated in the way he tells stories. Anybody else tell stories with their hands? Like, I, I, I don't use my mouth. I use my hands, you know. And the more excited I get, the wider the gestures get. And uh, our sound guy's like, keep your microphone close to your mouth. Um, I'm trying. I'm trying, Eric. Um, and so he's telling stories with his hands, and he's getting more and more animated. And at one point, this fisherman throws his hands out, and he bangs his hand into a teapot that a waitress was carrying behind him. And as soon as he hands the teapot, the tea goes all over this brand new whitewashed wall. Now, the fisherman is just mortified. He's embarrassed. And the innkeeper, who has spent a lot of money and effort redoing his pub, he's livid. And if you've ever kind of watched like a fight happen and you're like, should I intervene? Should I get my camera out and record this? Maybe it'll go viral. Like, you know, you know, you don't, you don't know what to do in the moment. Well, well, Sir Edwin, he, he just felt like he had to step in. And so as the innkeeper is ready to just let the storyteller have it, Sir Edwin pops in and he goes, I, I may be of some assistance here. So he goes upstairs to his room and he gets his tools for sketching and he brings them back down and he has a vision for what this stain can become. Now, of course, this is not a picture of that stain. We don't have a picture of the stain. It's a, it's a legend. Use your imagination. But, but he, takes, he takes the body of the stain and he begins to draw an animal. He takes the little spots that are far away and he begins to draw antlers. And as the legend goes, this tea stain on this whitewashed wall ultimately becomes a sketch of a staff. Now, he didn't draw this. Again, you're using your imagination here, people. Work with me. But he turns this stain into a stag because he saw not what had gone wrong, but he saw what could be. Now, I think all of us are living through a stain right now. Things have gone wrong that we didn't see coming. Things have fallen apart that we worked really hard to assemble. Things are broken and fallen down that we have given our lives to building. Pieces of our life lay in pieces. And I think we serve a God who gave that eye to Sir Edwin. Who himself doesn't see the stain, but who sees the staff. Over the next few weeks, we're going to work our way through a series entitled Rebuilding. Because I believe all of us, in some way, are rebuilding in our lives. Paul told you earlier about how we're rebuilding serving teams here at Cornerstone. Maybe you are rebuilding friendships, rebuilding businesses, rebuilding the life that you have. 
And over the next several weeks, we're going to study through a book in the Bible that shows about how God used a man to rebuild a city. But not just a city, but the hope in the hearts of people that their city represented. And I'd encourage you to be with us, whether you're watching online or in person, for each of the next several weeks, because I believe that you're going to see some of your own story and your own struggle, and I hope you'll see some of your own rebuilding and restoration in the story that we explore in the book of Nehemiah. So we're going to begin today with week one, and here's the big idea, that prayer is always the first step in rebuilding what has been broken. Prayer is always the first step in rebuilding what has been broken. Now, I I just want to kind of directly speak to some of you who are like the cynics and the skeptics in the room. You're like, of course, of course, prayer. You would say that, Scott, you're a pastor. I'm going to be honest with you. I am somebody who is a recovering um, prayer cynic. Because for many years, I'm somebody who thought that prayer was something that people used as an excuse or a delay instead of getting after the real work. But I hope you'll see today with me, and I'll share how I've worked through and, and recovered from that cynicism, that this is actually the place we have to start. So if you're new to the Bible, the book of Nehemiah is located in the first half or first third of the Bible. It's nestled between two books called Ezra and Esther. And if you're new to the Bible, you might think the Bible's laid out in chronological order. It's not. The Bible is laid out in thematic or type order. And so the book of Nehemiah comes near the first half of the Bible, but actually in terms of the chronology or the history of the timeline, it actually appears far later. And in your Bible, you have three books. You have Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. In terms of history, they actually go in backwards order. They go Esther, Nehemiah, Ezra. And over the next few weeks, we're going to make our home in the book of Nehemiah. So I'd encourage you, if you have a physical Bible, if you have a digital Bible, turn it on, open it up, and head to Nehemiah. We're going to read the entire first chapter today. And uh, if you're at home, I'd encourage you to stand. If you're here in the room, I'd invite you to stand. We're going to read through Nehemiah chapter 1 together today. Beginning with verse 1, this is what we read. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. I almost said Hakalugi. That was a joke I learned as a kid. During the month of Kislev in the 20th year, when I was in the fortress city of Susa, Han and I, one of my brothers, arrived with men from Judah, and I questioned them about Jerusalem and the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile. They said to me, the remnant in the province who survived the exile are in great trouble and disgrace. Jerusalem's walls have been broken down and its gates have been burned. Now, when I heard these words, I sat down and I wept. I mourned for a number of days, fasting and praying before the God of the heavens. I said, Lord, the God of the heavens, the great and awe-inspiring God who keeps his gracious covenant with those who love him and keep his commands, let your ears be open, eyes be open, and your ears be attentive to hear your servant's prayer that I now pray to you day and night for your servants, the Israelites. I confess the sins that we have committed against you. Both I and my father's family have sinned. 
We have acted corruptly towards you and have not kept the commands, statutes, and ordinances you gave your servant Moses, who said, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and carefully observe my commands, even though your exiles were banished to the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place where I chose to have my name dwell. They are your servants and your people. You redeemed them by your great power and your strong hand. So please, Lord, be attentive. Let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to that of your servants who delight to revere your name. Give your servant success today and grant him compassion in the presence of this man. Jesus, I pray that you would fulfill that prayer in our midst that our eyes would be open and our ears would be attentive to what you have for us today. And as we look ahead at, at rebuilding what has been broken and lost over the last year, I pray that you would restore our hope even as you restored the hope of your people. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Now, I know that when any of us think about rebuilding, there's a variety of ways that we can get started. Some of us like to just jump into the projects. Some of us open up and look for the instructions. Some of us arrange all of the pieces. Some of us get down the road and do it wrong, then get mad and angry and yell, take it all apart, start over again. Someone, likely your spouse, goes, I told you to look at the instructions. Um, so I know there's a variety of personalities in this room and in your living room as you watch from home when it comes to rebuilding. But I want to encourage us with three reminders as we begin a rebuild. And the first one is this, life breaks all of us. Eventually, at some point in your life, you're going to go through a season of loss and brokenness, and you're going to have to rebuild. And in this moment, Nehemiah is faced with a rebuild uh, because the walls of Jerusalem have been torn down, the gates have been burned, and this actually happens about 140 years before the passage we just read. Uh, Nehemiah is living in a city called Susa, and he's serving as cupbearer to the king. Now, I don't think anybody in this room, anybody watching online, has cupbearer on your resume. It's not a job that's very popular today. But in the day of Nehemiah, it was incredibly important. The cupbearer had a variety of roles. He was responsible for making sure that the king was not poisoned through his cup. He was responsible for making sure that the people who were coming to see the king didn't have a nefarious agenda. He was responsible for being a, an advisor to the king. And this was really important because during the Persian Empire, which is when Nehemiah lives, four different kings were murdered. So it was a precedent that somebody would try to kill you, which is why Nehemiah has a job. And six of the kings came to power through some sort of coup-type situation. So again, his job is incredibly important. And just for some context in terms of the history and the location, over here in the far right of this map is the city of Susa. It's basically modern-day Iran. And the people had come from Jerusalem. This, this map kind of shows you the path from Susa to Jerusalem. But, but that path that goes from Jerusalem to Susa, or vice versa, was not a short trip. 
That path was 900 miles. So it's like here to L.A. and back and then back to L.A. Long, long trip. That's how long Han and I and the rest had come to give Nehemiah a report about what happened in Jerusalem. And they give this report that is incredibly sobering and difficult that 140 years after the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed Jerusalem and torn down the walls and burned the gates, that they were still in the same state 140 years later. In Nehemiah 1 verse 3, we read, The remnant in the province who survived the exile are in great trouble and disgrace. Jerusalem's walls had been broken down and its gates have been burned. So in this passage, we not only see that there is a physical consequence to this, this exile, this conquering, this defeat in the walls and the gates, there's also a psychological impact. And that's what's true for us too. It isn't just that the last year has had some physical ramifications for our lives. It's also had psychological, mental, emotional, spiritual Ramifications, And we see this in the text. I bolded that phrase there, great trouble. And the, the word in Hebrew for great trouble is the word ra'ah. It means danger, disaster, calamity, or misery, a condition detrimental to life. So they're not just experiencing like some hard times. They're experiencing something that's making it difficult to actually live and endure. And the other word I highlighted there, the word disgrace, it comes from the Hebrew word herpa, which means reproach or shame or disgrace, scorn, insult, contempt, and threat. These broken down walls and burned down gates didn't just impact their physical safety. It impacted them on a soul level. And so when Hanani comes and tells Nehemiah this, he's describing a devastating situation. An incredible problem, which is why it breaks the heart of Nehemiah. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the history of the Old Testament, maybe just the Bible in general, what you need to know is the condition of these walls was not uh, out of nowhere. It was prophesied. Moses, back at the beginning of the Bible, had prophesied what would happen if the people abandoned God, worshipped other gods, looked to idols, and were unfaithful to the covenant their ancestors had made. This rebuilding situation they were facing was as a result of God's decision to follow through on his word and punish them for breaking this covenant. For building alliances with other nations, for worshiping false gods, for not being faithful. And let me be really clear right here, because I think some of you are making a mental leap right now. The suffering and loss of the last year that we've experienced is not the same as the judgment we read in Nehemiah. I'm not here to say that the pandemic was a punishment or a plague by God. I'm not here to tell you that these things that we've experienced are God's way of smiting us. I just want to use the word smite. It's a nice word to use sometimes. It's not God smiting us. There, there's, I don't think there's any way to know that for sure. It's different. They were living under the old covenant. We just celebrated the symbol of the new covenant found in the shed blood of Jesus Christ for our sins. Our relationship with God is no longer about us being faithful to earn his favor and love. We now celebrate Christ's faithfulness on our behalf. So it's different. 
But the same kind of emotions that they experienced, I think we've experienced. But to so many of you who just say, Scott, I'm just angry. After the last year, I'm just, I'm just mad. And I'm like, I know, I can feel it. You know, m- maybe you're like, I'm just sad. I'm all cried out. I've cried the tears and I've gone through the emotions. And maybe it's just that you're disappointed. You're, ex- you're extended. You're exasperated. You're just done. A couple weeks ago, I was listening to a talk that my mentor gave, Dr. Maxie Birch, and he was talking about change. And he, he quoted from Alvin Toffler, who said, Future shock is the dizzying disorientation brought on by the premature arrival of the future. That sounds like where we're living. I think a lot of us saw some things happening in the future. We just didn't expect them all to arrive at the same time. We didn't think they would all arrive at this time. And so with all of the change and all of the, 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 the transition and all of the things that we are now stepping into that seemed radical and unbelievable in the past, all of them happening at once are leaving us dizzy and disoriented. I do have to note that Alvin Toffler wrote a book called Future Shock, where this quote comes from, and he wrote it in 1970. Dude's way smarter than me. 50 years ago, he saw this coming. And if you think about everything that we've been through in the last year, all of the conflict, all of the change, all of the difficulty, all of the loss, all the things that have been broken, it's no wonder that we are all mentally, physically, spiritually, and emotionally exhausted. And it isn't just out there. It's, it's in here, too. We've moved from one location to another to be in church together. Some of us were online. Some of us have been in person. Some of you weren't here before COVID. Some of you who were, people who were here before COVID are no longer here. There's been massive change. And what change has a tendency to do inside of us is to break things inside of us. So this morning, I want to ask you a question, and this is rhetorical, which means do not answer out loud. What broke in you last year? What snapped? What happened inside your soul? No, I don't mean what happened to you or what happened to us. What happened in you? What was your great trouble or your disgrace? As Nehemiah Where is it that the rebuilding is going to have to begin? Because in the end, life breaks all of us. The second reminder we need is that what we do with pain determines our future. What we do with pain determines our future. If you're going to talk about loss and some situation where rebuilding is necessary, you have to talk about pain. Be one thing if you were just re- rebuilding buildings, that would be one thing, but we're, we're rebuilding our lives. And that involves wrestling with and rumbling with the pain that we feel. Most of us tend to have one or two reactions when it comes to pain. We either like to face it or we like to avoid it. 
and we tend to fall in one of those two categories. And if you're the kind of person who tends to want to face pain, then, then you may already be kind of working through some of this stuff. But if you're somebody who tends to avoid pain, then this next section is for you. And it's for me too. I, I would tell you that there are multiple times in the last year that, that I felt like I was in the ocean and I saw a wave coming ahead. And that wave wasn't water. No, no. It was anxiety. It was panic. And like a wave coming that I knew it was going to crash on me, I could see the wave of panic coming. I could see the wave of anxiety coming. I could feel my heart rate going up. I could feel my hands beginning to get a little bit shaky. I could feel the focus starting to go away. And I've had to learn as somebody who's battled anxiety that that when I choose to run from that wave, it lasts longer, it's way harder, and the effects go way deeper. But like if I'm in a boat and I face the wave, Yeah, it's a little bit scary. But after a couple minutes, I'm through it and I'm on the other side. And I just want to invite you today, if you're somebody who tends to avoid pain, to just hang with us, even in this conversation, and see if God is inviting you into a different path. In Nehemiah 1.4, we read these words. Nehemiah wrote the book. He says, when I heard these words about this great trouble and this disgrace and the walls and the gates, I sat down and I wept. He's not avoiding it. He's facing it. I mourned for a number of days, fasting and praying before the God of heavens. And you might say, yeah, he faced it, but he didn't really face it. He didn't get after it. He didn't start going to fix it. And that's where I think some of us, we, we need to change our relationship to prayer. Because if you said, you saw when I said, hey, prayer is the first step in the path of rebuilding, you go, oh, of course it's prayer. You might be somebody who says prayer is where weak people go to avoid pain. If you haven't said that, you probably have heard somebody say that. And there's a kernel of truth in there. But maybe it's different than you think. See, actually, prayer is where weak people go to process pain. And we're all weak. And if you think you're not weak, just live long enough and life will show you. Because life breaks all of us. And I'm weak. I know this, uh, this platform and these lights and this microphone and these slides make me look really put together and strong, but I'm not that strong. And this past year, it broke me. And prayer is where I began to go as a weak person to process my pain. Because I learned that social media is not a good place to go to process my pain. I either can type things faster than I can think about them and hit publish before I actually think, should I hit publish? Or I go and I share things that are rather painful with people who are not in a good place to actually help me with my pain. Or I go and see so much of everybody else's pain that I'm even more depressed than I was about my pain. And and here's the problem with pain in church. There's a lot of us that get really uncomfortable with other people's pain. 
It's one thing to be in pain yourself. It's another thing to encounter somebody else who's in pain. And our temptation when somebody else is in pain around us is to just start putting on a really fake smile. And if only we were fake, that would be okay. But the problem is, is that many times in church, when somebody shares their pain with us, what we do is make it worse. Because we try to fix it or minimize it. We slap a, a, a Band-Aid on it, a, a Christian cliche. Oh, it's okay. There's people who are worse off than you. Hey, you still have your health. You're still alive, you know. Um, God, God has a plan, you know. God works all things for good. And while there is truth in each of those statements... So often what, where they come from is not a desire to help somebody else, but to make ourselves feel better. And when we're afraid of our own pain, what we're tempted to do is to numb it or suppress it. So we tend to want to minimize or downplay somebody else's pain, and we try to numb and suppress our own pain. All of this avoidance, all of this running from it, only makes it worse. See, when we numb pain, we experience surface-level relief rather than soul-level comfort. This is why what Nehemiah does is so profound as a model for us. He hears these words, and then he lets his feelings go. He doesn't try to constrain them. It says that he wept. And not for a short period. It says that he wept and then he prayed, and then he fasted for a number of days. A long time. He allowed himself to feel what he was going to feel and have the pain come, how it was going to come. And he did so with God. Not in isolation. Not locked up in his room. But in the presence of God. And comfort as deep as your pain is something that only God can bring. And this is why prayer is the first step when you're rebuilding. Because when you're facing the emotions and the pain of what you lost, God wants to process that with you. He wants to be with you in it. And God is the only true source of comfort that can go all the way down to the depths of your pain. Numbing will only hit the surface. Ignoring will only push it away for a little while. If you want comfort to go all the way to the depths of your pain, that can only come from God. And so, friends, what we do with our pain, it, it shapes and it molds what happens in our future. Third reminder I want to give you today is that prayer is the healthiest way to process pain. Prayer is the healthiest way to process Kevin Queen is a pastor that I got to know last year. Uh, I was actually flying to Nashville uh, one Monday morning and uh, to go to a conference. And uh, there had been a tornado the night before that hit Nashville. And, uh, and I, I'd met Kevin before. He's a pastor in Nashville. And I got, on the, I got on the flight, and I was like, man, is that Kevin? I just passed him as I was walking down the aisle. And then I pulled out my phone, and I saw his, he made a video for his church about the hurricane. And I was like, man, I think he's wearing the same jacket in that video. I think he's wearing the same shirt. So, you know, I was waiting for that, you know, uh, 
that's the default sign to go off. And as soon as it went off, I walked back and I'm walking and I was like, oh, that's him. And I just turned around and I said, hey, and, and talked to him and his wife. And they were in Phoenix and the tornado came and they were flying back to Nashville to be a part of rebuilding and to pray together. And this is what Kevin says about prayer. He says, an intentional life begins with prayer. Prayer isn't the only thing we do, but it is the first thing. The first thing that we do. And what Nehemiah does all throughout this book is he prays. See, this, this, this prayer we read in Nehemiah 1, 5 through 11, it's the first of nine times in 13 chapters that we watch Nehemiah turn to God. Again and again and again and again and again and again and again. He turns to God rather than his own strength. And, and, and this is where I, I think we see that, that for Nehemiah, prayer isn't just this thing he checks off the list. It's instinctual. And the question I have for you is, is prayer your first response to God or is it your last resort? Do you turn to prayer when you've tried everything else you can do? Or, or do you turn to prayer first because you're turning to God first? And that's what Nehemiah does. He's overwhelmed with the news of the walls being broken and the need to rebuild. And the first thing he does is he turns to God. Now, let's be honest. In the next 12 chapters, he's going to work his butt off. He's going to lead uh, in a way that few leaders have ever led. He's going to accomplish an ancient miracle, a modern day miracle in rebuilding. But the first thing he does is he turns to God. And and he doesn't turn to God in a demanding way. He turns to God in a discerning way. And this is where I think this is really important to see because it's important we recognize, are we demanding from God or are we discerning with God? For many of us, our prayer life, and I'll include myself in this, we demand from God. Dear God, and then we start our list of demands. It was like a hostage negotiation. God, you're going to do this, and you're going to do this, and you need to do this, and you need to do this, and you need to do this. And, you know? Instead, what, what Nehemiah does is he begins discerning with God, trying to understand how God is at work and what God is doing and what, what God wants to accomplish. Earlier in the Old Testament, there's a verse I, I stumbled on last year as I was reading through the Bible uh, in chronological order. In 2 Chronicles 16, 9, We read, for the eyes of the Lord roam throughout the earth to show himself strong for those who are wholeheartedly devoted to him. See, God is looking for people who are weak so that he can show himself as strong in their life. And he's looking for us to not come from a position of demanding from God, but discerning with God and saying, God, how are you at work? God, I am weak. God, this is overwhelming. God, I need your strength. That's the person I'm looking to lift up. And so what if instead of telling God what to do, we started asking him what he's doing and why he's doing it? What if instead of saying, God, how dare you allow all these things in my life to fall apart and I'm now demanding that you rebuild them? What if we step back and said, God, what are you doing? Why'd you allow all this? How are you at work? And instead of me telling you what to do, why don't I listen to what you want me to do? And we see that Nehemiah does this over an extended period of time. Now, most of us, hopefully, are are governed in our daily life by the Gregorian calendar, you know, January to December. But the Jews in that day were governed by a different calendar. 
there, there's a month in their calendar called Kislev. And so when Hanani comes, it's the month of Kislev. We read about that in Nehemiah 1. We'll read Nehemiah 2 next week, but just as a preview, when we get to the next thing that Nehemiah does, it says during the month of Nisan, not Nissan, that's the car company. Nisan, it says what he does next. Now between Kislev and Nisan is four months. Four months from now in the past is before Christmas. Square was still lit up with lights. And that's how long Nehemiah prayed and fasted and discerned with God. Trying to understand what God was doing and what God wanted him to do next. Friends, discernment takes time. It takes time to understand what God's doing. It takes time to understand how God's at work. And, and the problem is so few of us are truly discerning because so few of us are truly patient. We don't discern things well because we don't wait well. Patience is a fruit of the Holy Spirit, but it is not a fruit of the same tree. Just living life in 2021, you will not be formed into patience. You will not suddenly become patient. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. But as we wait in the Lord and wait on the Lord and deepen our connection to the Lord in prayer, he builds patience within us so we can begin asking some deep questions. So I have some questions that I've been asking about rebuilding that I'm going to invite you in. These are not on your handout. So if you're a note taker, just take a deep breath. I'm going to give you a link later where you can get all these. Also take a photo if you want of the screens. But here's some key questions to think about. What if you want to rebuild something God wanted torn down? And this is the part I told the team, nobody's going to like these questions. I probably should have given you a heads up on that. Um, but what, why do we always assume that just because it's torn down, God wants it rebuilt? What if you want to immediately rebuild, but God says, I'm not in a Is my hope in the walls, and I use walls in air quotes because it's a metaphor, or is it in the God who is the foundation under the walls? Was your hope in the things that you lost in 2020 or in the God who provided them in the first place? Who, by the way, is still there, <laughs> still strong, still secure. Nothing's happened to him. What if God tears down everything in your life that isn't built on What if you're rushing into rebuilding and God isn't done tearing? And what if God is at work in what I'm claiming as bad, evil, and wrong? You know, in Genesis 50, 20, after Joseph has been sold into slavery and experienced 20 years of misery, his brothers are terrified when they come to him. And what does Joseph say? You intended this for evil, but God intended it for good. So there are things that are bad, evil, and wrong that have happened in the last 13 months. And God is at work in them. It doesn't mean that God caused those bad, evil, and wrong things, but we serve a God who wastes nothing. So what if he's at work within it? See, I think God wants to rebuild his people's hope as long as that hope is in him. And if we want to rebuild things in our lives because our hope is in those things, 
we may find ourselves opposing God because he wants us to reap all the things that are rooted in him. And this is why I think it's really important for us to understand there's a big difference between wanting God's presence and wanting God's provision. Do you want God or do you want what God did? Do you want God or do you want God to do what you want to do? I can tell you when people in my life want me for what I can do for them, I don't enjoy those relationships. Do you want me or do you want my stuff? Do you want me or do you want access? Do you want me for me or do you want me for what I can do for you? See, prayer is always the first step in rebuilding what has been broken, starting with our relationship with God. So I have some next steps for you this morning to begin this series. These are on your notes if you turn your hand out of the way. Number one, I want you to ask yourself what happened and how do I feel about it? What happened and how do I feel about it? See, here's what I will tell you. I think for a lot of us, we're carrying around ungrieved losses. We haven't wanted to grieve. We've got emotions that everybody else knows that we're experiencing, but we haven't faced yet. And those ungrieved losses and those unknown emotions, they're like IEDs. When our troops went over to Iraq in the early 2000s, one of the greatest threats to their lives were IEDs. Bombs and explosive devices that were hidden in roads. And they didn't even see them coming. And your ungrieved losses and your unknown emotions, they are like IEDs for you. You don't see them coming until they've broken and broken. So ask yourself, what happened and how do I feel about it? Number two, feel the feelings instead of avoiding or denying them. Feel the feels. Say, Scott, it sounds like a little bit of a, you know, woo-woo, you know. Actually, it's not woo-woo. It's Jesus. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. We're really good at this part. We're not so good at this part. But if we're to love him with all of our being, it means feeling all the feelings he actually gave us in the first place. And then number three, discern those experiences and those feelings with God in prayer. I mentioned to you earlier, there's a, a website you can go to that we have, prescottcornerstone.com slash worship resources. There's a little button that's got an arrow pointed at it called Sermon Extras, and it's got all those questions that I asked. What if you took time and just took some time this weekend, wrote down the answers to those? What, what would it look like for you to process those with God? How might he begin showing you where this rebuilding really needs to start? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you are with us. We thank you that you are speaking to us. And we thank you that you don't want us to go this alone. So we pray that you would speak in this next week. As we turn to you, we pray that you'd work in our hearts, that you'd reveal, show our eyes, give us ears to hear how you're moving. God, we don't want to be opposed to what you want to do. We want to be aligned with it. So we pray that as you are fighting on our behalf and you are at work, we pray that we would see it and we would join you there. Jesus, we want you for you, not for what you can do for us. And so we're entrusting ourselves to you today. In your name we pray, Jesus.
Amen.